And as I turn there, and as you guys are getting there yourselves, I was thinking this week, the few times that I really stop and consider my life and really recall what's taken place during the day, I don't know about you guys, but some, some days I just, it's overwhelming. And so I come home, and I sit down, and I, I really think about what, what just took place. And I think oftentimes if we were to tell the story of our lives, the way that we would tell it is we would kind of, I can't speak for you guys, but I can speak for myself. Oftentimes I tell stories about what happened during my day, and my wife will ask me, you know, how, how did your day go? And my answer usually is something to the effect of, well, I went to work and this happened. You know, and if it's a weekend, I went fishing and this happened. Or if I was hanging out with one of my friends, I was hanging out with so-and-so and this happened. And the reality is, is that oftentimes we look at our lives through the lens of what happened, what took place. And no doubt, that's what our lives are about. That's, that's what, I mean, things happen on a day-to-day basis. Some of them very good, some of them very bad and discouraging. But the reality is, is that sometimes we look through, at life through the wrong lens. We look at it as, as what happened to me. I don't know about you guys, but I have this tendency to go, such and such happened to me today. Rather than saying, how did I respond to it? As I read through the, the Gospel of Mark, this week I, I, I felt the need to, since we're about halfway through, to back up and kind of review what we've studied through. And it's the first seven chapters. I didn't go back and do an in-depth study, but I, what I did do is I, on my little phone, I can listen to the Bible read through. And so I started at chapter 1, and I went through chapter 3, and I only got through chapter 3, not because I didn't need to keep going, but as I was listening to the passage, what I found out was, as I was re- listening to it, I was writing down the main issues, what had happened. And I found myself writing down, such and such happened. This happened to Jesus. This happened to Jesus. And then Jesus did this. And very often, I would find myself writing down what happened to him, which is really normal events that happen to all of us, rather than writing down what, the way that he responded to those events. The glorious thing about Jesus Christ is not that he went through the same troubles that we did, because if, if that was the glorious thing, then we would be glorious. The glorious thing about our Lord Jesus is that when he lived this life and he came down and he left heaven and lived here among us, the things that happened to us, as we would see them, happened to him. And the difference between him and us is the way that he responded to those instances. He responded in a way that showed that he was more than just mere man. He responded in a way that showed that he was, in fact, the Son of God. We often look at life, and there's this, uh, there's this present-day... Uh, psychology or ideology, if you will, that I am what I am because of the circumstances that happened in my life. Well, if you take that same theory and you put it on Jesus's life, you would say Jesus was the son of God because this, this, and this happened. Jesus was the son of God because he got crucified. Now, is that the case? Absolutely not. Jesus was the son of God because he just was. He is. He still is today. He's the Son of God. He sits at the right hand of the Father. So if we know that, then we can also know something about ourselves, that it's not the circumstances of life that make us who we are. It's the fact that God created us to be something way more than we think that He created us for. And He didn't create us with all kinds of good potential in us. He created us, 
And then we have the opportunity to either surrender our lives to him, follow him, or to rebel against him. And the reality is, is that most people choose to rebel against him. And, and when someone doesn't choose to rebel against him, they can't even boast in that because it's the grace of God being manifest in their lives. God imparts his spirit. He shows us where we lack. And then he gives us grace to get through the day. And he shows us his son. He shows us the law, shows us the Ten Commandments. And he says, you can't live up to these. And we have an opportunity to either say, you're right. I'm repenting of my sin and I want your righteousness in, in return for my wickedness. Or we can also respond and say, no, no, I'm not a sinner. I don't need grace. And, and there's different ways that people respond. But I, I guess I was just thinking about that this week because I oftentimes, I don't know about you guys, but I, I go through my daily life. I, the weekend's over, the excitement's over, and I'm back to the grind. And the reality is, is that the things of this life can get me down at times. Circumstances, even when things aren't really that bad. I can lose peace. I don't have joy. And, it's, and, and so as I was thinking about that fact, I thought about, as we're reading through the Gospel of Mark and as we're studying it, how Jesus was completely, every turn, there was somebody waiting to either ask him to do something for them or somebody waiting to oppose him and tell him that he wasn't who he said he was and to tell him that he wasn't the Son of God and to even try to find some sort of fault in him. He was always being tested. He's always going through trials. So as I thought about that, I thought about some of the characteristics of Jesus. And one of them is uh, steadfast. And one of them is unshakable. How, did, how is it that he went through all the circumstances we've been studying in Mark, and yet it seems that he had this perfect peace about him? He was unshakable. And so as I thought about that characteristic, just so happened this week as I was reading through my daily Bible reading, I got to Isaiah chapter 26. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, and I'll have it up on the screen there, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I've read this verse many times, but this time it opened my eyes to a truth that I had not yet considered. I like the first part, he will keep me in perfect peace. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want there to be peace in their lives? But there's a condition to this promise. That promise isn't just a wide open promise that he's just going to give us peace. There's a precursor to that promise. He promises that he will keep the person in perfect peace whose mind is stayed or whose mind is leaning on him. I've always thought that if I did not have peace in my life, it was because the Lord was not blessing me. Maybe I'd done something wrong or that he had left me. But the truth is that if I have no peace, it was my fault for not trusting him. Perfect peace comes to those whose minds are leaning on Jesus. And Isaiah even gives the reason, because you are actively trusting in him. So true peace that's given by God is given when our minds are leaning or resting on Jesus because we trust him, which makes sense because he is, in fact, the king of peace. So if we know that, we think about an example of that. If a chair looks like it's going to be broken if we sit on it, we might sit in it just to please somebody if they offered it to us, but we're not going to put our full weight on it. Now, if we know that a chair's been tested and it's got the name brand, you can insert your own favorite chair, you know, but if it's you know, Lazy Boy or whatever it might be, if it's that brand and you know that they test their chairs to the utmost, they put way more weight than ever should go on it, 
When you sit down in that thing, you're going to just go, wham, you're just going to fall back in it. It's going to be a place of rest and, and peace. You know, that's what I think of when I think of my dirty old recliner. I think of a place where I can sit, I can read, I can, you know, hang out with my wife. I can, I can you know, look at stuff on the internet. I can just be. It's my place of comfort. And so if you think about that, if you know that chair can hold you, you're, gonna, you're not going to just like kind of sit down very delicately. You're going you're gonna to fall back in it. And that's the idea. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. His mind is rested on him because he trusts in you. And I think about that because uh, <clears throat> the Pharisees were just lurking around every corner waiting for Jesus to fall up. Jesus was waiting to get hit head on by all these guys, but he continues steadfastly and unshaken. He's pressing toward the goal of our salvation. He didn't go through it because he was trying to prove how strong he was. He had a final goal, and it wasn't just to get glory. It was so that you and I could be partakers of a heavenly kingdom. Not only that, but the gospel accounts showing him to be unshaken in the midst of trial. What better evidence could we have that he has been tested and found to be able to hold every bit of weight that we could possibly put on his shoulders? He's able to be there with us in the midst of the most critical and seemingly impossible situations. The Pharisees were so caught up in trying to find fault in him that they show up and they're like, hey, your, your disciples aren't washing their hands right. You know, and he came for this bigger purpose. Remember that he had been consistently opposed by the religious leaders of this day. And so after enough opposition, he departs and he goes to those who will receive him. He says, okay, you guys had the Old Testament scriptures. You know that, you, you don't know, but the, 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 the prophecies that you boast in knowing they were speaking of me and since you won't receive me what he does is he he takes a little caveat he leaves the nation of israel and he goes to the region of tyre and sidon he goes to a gentile region and they called them dogs the jewish people were so upset they thought they were going to religious cooties so they wouldn't go to the gentile dogs but jesus knowing that he loved them very much he went to them and uh, <clears throat> it's interesting to me that the first person he comes into contact with is a woman whose child is, is possessing a demon, is possessed by a demon. And he goes and he, this lady finds him, even though she had no reason to believe that he would do anything for her. And she casts out the demon. Um, the Pharisees were so caught up in their own religion that they missed the point. And so in James chapter 1, verse 27, that, that passage teaches... The pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The Pharisees had this backwards. Their main focus was to keep themselves from getting dirty, but they didn't care about anybody else but themselves. It seems to me that the Pharisees missed the point. So Jesus went outside of Israel to go and do what they should have been doing in the first place. They were supposed to be a blessing to other nations because of the relationship that they had with Yahweh, the one true and living God. They were supposed to reflect him by doing for other people what he had already done for them. When he took them out of, the, out of Egypt, when he set them free from captivity, they were supposed to be a reflection of that. If you're set free by the Son of God, surely you would want to set other people free, recognizing what you've been given freely. So, verse 31, we're finally there. It says again, Departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he's, 
he's moved on. He, he went there, he met with the one woman, and he takes off. And he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they, the multitude, brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat, and he touched his tongue. This man was not only without hearing, but also he had a speech impediment. Uh, the word there for speech impediment is just, it just means hardly talking, dumb, or tongue-tied. Not dumb in the sense that he wasn't smart or he was ignorant, but in the sense that for whatever reason there was a disconnect between what his brain wanted to say and what his tongue could do. There was a brokenness there. And so because of that, notice from verse 32, the multitude came to Jesus and they begged him to touch the, the man. So at this point, he's taking a moment to speak with the man and he can't speak. He, he can't say words to him because the man can't understand. And so what he does is he, he walks up to the man and he, he explains to him, I know what you're going through. I know what your, your impedi- I know what your problem is. And so he touches the man's ears. He sticks his fingers in his ears and he's, he spits. And it doesn't say where he spits. It just says he spits and he touches his tongue. Now, I won't focus so much on what he does other than the fact that it's interesting to me that he, he, he's trying to fix his ears and what he does is he plugs them. You know, we oftentimes think, well, if he can't hear, there must be something in his ears. You know, a couple months ago, I had problems with my ears. I had to go to the doctor. I had a buildup in there. We won't go into details, but it was gross. You know, but we oftentimes think, I can't hear the Lord, so I need to unplug my ears. But the Lord sometimes, what he has to do in order for us to hear him, is he has to plug our ears. The interesting thing is, is that we have, are constantly bombarded with noises, with sounds, with visions, with visuals on TV and billboards. You can't even drive down a highway without getting bombarded with advertisements like pop-up ads all the time. Except you don't have to click them off. They're always there. You can't get rid of them. So what the Lord does is he sticks his fingers in his ears and he explains to them, I know, and I know. And what he does, he's, he's just explaining to him without using words, I know, what, I know you have an issue. So first of all, what would your reaction be if someone did this to you? They stuck their fingers in your ears. I don't know about you guys. I don't like people touching my face. Like, I'm really sensitive right here. Even when my wife will touch my, my nose or something, I'm just like, ah, you know, don't, t- don't touch me there, you know it. But Jesus walks up and he touches this man's ears and his tongue. And it seems to me the man didn't have an adverse reaction. He, he needed to be touched. He knew that. He knew there was something wrong and he couldn't fix it himself. Secondly, it seems to me that if someone could not hear, you wouldn't stick your fingers into the guy's ears. Nonetheless, he does it. And in verse 34, it says, Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. It's just Aramaic for be opened. Immediately, it says, his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. So Jesus, having touched this man's brokenness, this disconnect that he had, looks to his father, which should remind, be a reminder to us of where his authority comes from. And then it says that Jesus sighed. Now, if you skip over that, you're, you're missing out on something because Jesus is sighing here. And oftentimes we think of somebody sighing, we're just like, you know, maybe he's out of breath or something. But in this case, the word sighed is the word stenazo. It's the next slide up there. One more. 
stenazo. And it's just a word that means to murmur or to pray inaudibly. With grief is the idea, to groan. And I wondered about that. Why, does it, why was he groaning? You know, he was getting ready to glorify the Father by his works on earth. But, it said, but what I thought about is perhaps he was groaning over the effects that sin has had on this earth. When Adam was created from the dust, he said it was, he was good. It wasn't good that he had no partner to, you know, have a, to be a partnership with the marriage, but, but he said it was good. And, and so sin came into the world and it tainted what God had created. And isn't it interesting that we oftentimes think, you know, little white lie, it's just one sin. But one man's sin, Adam, is what caused all of the enmity between man and God. And then ultimately, as a result, it's caused all these wars and fights between people because Adam didn't obey the one command he was given. We often think about the Ten Commandments and we go, wow, those are, those are kind of specific and they're kind of harsh. But God tried one commandment. He said, don't eat of the tree of, good, of the knowledge of good and evil. And he just couldn't do it. He, he, he got tempted and because he desired it and because you know, Eve ate of it. And, but Eve didn't know any better, but Adam did. He disobeyed directly. And so because of that, the, the effects of sin, even to the point where this man now, he can't hear and he can't speak because of sin in the world. And that's why we suffer with ailments. That's why our bodies, they wear out, you know. But I thought it interesting that the very mouth that spoke the words, be open to this man to heal his ears and his, and his tongue, is the same mouth, if you think about it, that breathed the breath of life into Adam after he was fashioned out of the clay. The same mouth that spoke the words and he spoke everything that we know, the, the earth, the creation, the, uh, the, the galaxies, everything that we've seen and everything that we've yet to discover was created by that same mouth. And so he shows us that he's Lord, not only over creation, but over our bodies, our physical bodies. And he's Lord also over our spirits. And so because of that, remember that when God made man, sin had not yet tainted what God had made and called good. And once the fall happened, Adam disobeying, he rebelled. And so from that point on, sin's been a part of our nature and we inherited it. They're plagued, man is plagued with disease, deformities, imperfections, and inefficiencies. It's the same reason that if I wanted to go to run a mile right now, I'd be completely worn out after it. Because it takes lots of energy. I've got to eat some more food. Sin. So, and also the sin of me not taking care of this, this temple. I don't exercise well enough. But Jesus shows us a glimpse of what he can do by restoring this man's hearing and his speech. This man was now able, after Jesus healed him, to speak plainly. And I found that interesting. This is quite a feat because if you consider, this man's speech was messed up because he was deaf. I don't know if any of you guys know anybody that, that can't hear. They've been deaf from birth. But when they learn how to speak, they can't hear themselves and the noises that they're making so they can imitate what other people are doing. So oftentimes you, you have this, this noise that comes out. It's not quite what it should be. There's, you can tell they have a speech impediment. And so because of that, it's interesting to me that when he healed his ears, instantly his tongue worked perfectly. That would have taken anybody else years to relearn because he'd already learned the language wrongly. And so it's interesting to me that when he does this, the crowd says that he does all things well. Verse 36, Then he commanded them that they should tell no one 
But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So because of all that happened, there was an excitement and an astonishment. And Jesus told the people, don't tell anybody. I always get confused at that. I'm like, why not? Well, number one, he he was trying to still be able to go and minister freely. Every time somebody told another person, he was pressed in on by multiple crowds. They wanted to be healed too, and I don't blame them. But the other thing is, is he's in a Gentile region. He's a Jewish Messiah. He didn't want them to, to see yet that he was, his plan was not for them just to be in Israel, but it was also to go to all nations, to be a blessing to them. But the Jews weren't ready to hear that. And even in the book of Acts, we see that as Peter gets a vision in Acts chapter 10, and the Lord tells him, rise, go kill and eat. And there's all these different visions of pork and all the foods they were never supposed to eat in the Old Testament. The Lord tells him, don't call unclean that which God has said is clean. Go to the nations. So he sends Peter out to the Gentile nations. And I'm praising the Lord for that because Peter and Paul, they go to the Gentiles. That means that you and I get to hear the good news too. So the Lord Jesus starts the ball rolling in this big process. But he also tells them not to speak of it. But interesting that when one man is touched by the Lord and he's healed completely, that he can't keep his mouth shut. The Lord gives him the ability to first hear and then to speak. And notice that that's a pattern in our lives. Oftentimes, I've been at churches before, and this is just the reality, is oftentimes the first time somebody comes to church or gets saved or something, the thought is like, okay, they're saved, they're in the church, let's put them to work. But the reality is, is that sometimes we need to just sit you know, like Mary, and be at the feet of Jesus and just receive from him. Partake of the bread of life. Soak it in. And then as the Lord feeds us and we become nourished on his word, then at the point that we're ready, he's going to send us out. He's going to give us, he's going to have already filled us with something to say. So often, you know, oftentimes I've heard people say, you know, I, I just started going to church. And I know I'm supposed to share my faith, but I just, I'm not there yet. It's okay. You know, babies, when they're born, You don't tell them to go, hey, all right, uh, go get a job. You know, they're not matured yet. They can't handle the responsibilities. On top of the reason, you don't want them driving around to get to their jobs. So the Lord, in his grace, is he, he plants his seed in our hearts, and then it takes root, and then that sapling grows up. And as it grows, it starts to produce leaves. When it produces leaves, then it can suck in all the the sun's rays and the and the moisture, and and then because of that. A healthy plant will produce fruit. And so the Lord here, he restores his hearing. And then because of that, right after that, he can talk. And immediately he was restored. He had a message to say. And you couldn't shut him up. You couldn't stop the man from speaking about the one who had touched him and healed his body and given him a a new voice, a new song. And the testimony of all who witnessed what took place was that he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now we know that Jesus does all things well, but what he has done is not limited to this one instance. You see, Mark focused in on this one case of the healing of the deaf man with a speech impediment, but Matthew's account in chapter 15 um, gives us a bird's eye view. Matthew chapter 15, verse 30, and I think I have it up there for you. It says, Then great multitudes came to him, 
having with them the lame, the blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they made them down, excuse me, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. These Gentiles in this region of Decapolis, which just means ten cities, they were in this metropolis of an area, they're glorifying the God of Israel and praising his name by saying what is true. And by the way, they're saying what the Jewish people and their religious leaders should have been saying. He had already went to them. And they didn't have the same testimony. They completely missed the Holy One of Israel that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And instead of saying he doesn't wash his hands like we do, like we saw a couple weeks ago, the Gentile people that he came in contact with are saying he does all things well. They didn't have a hang up about how he washed his pots, about how he washed his hands, about what food he ate, or that his disciples picked grain and ate it on the Sabbath. They were like, hey, he came to us and he blessed us. We're thankful. We want to give glory to his father. So verse one in chapter eight says, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way for some of them have come from afar. So this current multitude that's following Jesus has quite the stamina. We move on to the next instance, and they have quite the stamina. They've been with him for three days, and at this point, they have no food. Jesus specifically says to his disciples, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. First off, these people must have really wanted to be with Jesus in order to stay with him for three days. I can't stay at work for three days without food. I don't want to be there that bad. I'm going to go to McDonald's. You know, they wanted to be there with him. And obviously they were in a place where they weren't at home, so they couldn't just go to McDonald's. But they wanted to stay there. They wanted what he had. They probably weren't even quite sure what he had yet, but they had seen him do all things well. So they were sticking around. They wanted to see what was going to happen next. So I think it's interesting here that Jesus, he says that I have compassion on the multitude. And here the word... In the Greek, and I, I don't even know how to say it. Go ahead and put it up there. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a whopper there. Splangnizamahi. <laughs> All right, I can't speak Greek, so we're going to skip that. <laughs> uh, but it means to have the bowels yearn. I don't know about you guys, but you ever, you ever get this like in your stomach, like a situation? It might be a bad situation. It might make you feel sick to your stomach. It might be a good situation where you get butterflies. You're like, I wonder what's going to happen because of all this. That's the idea. He's moved to physical. He feels something's going on. Now, we don't want to go off of our feelings, but it says here that he's moved with compassion. And the Son of God here is moved because he feels sympathy. That's what the word means, to pity, to have, or to be moved with compassion. And this is the idea of mercy, not just compassion where you... You see something on TV where there's starving children, which we should have compassion on those that have no food. But this is a compassion that isn't a fleeting compassion. He sees it and he can't help but do something about it. 
He has to. It's like there's no other way. He couldn't just go home and sit down in the recliner and watch TV. He's got to do something. And so Jesus here, he shows compassion. He speaks to his disciples. It says there that he spoke to his disciples. He says, I I have compassion on the multitude. They've continued with me three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they might faint on the way. They They might look malnourished. And if you know anything about the Son of God, He is the good shepherd. And sheep reflect their shepherd. They've come to Him because they have a need, and they're following Him continually because He supplied their need. They're trusting Him. They're fully resting in Him. And so because of that, He he honors their faith. He offers to them food. And He knows that when they go back to their country, wherever they're from, in the region of Decapolis, He wants the word to be spread that he does all things well and he takes care of his sheep and he sends them home well fed. So we see that here in this in this uh, situation. But notice the disciples response in in verse four says, then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Now, if if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about the fact that when he fed the 5,000, it said that there were 5,000 men in the crowd. Now, we, we can make an estimate, and it is a guesstimate. I don't know the actual number. But what's known is that because they, they only mentioned the men, that's how they counted in that day, there was probably actually about 15,000 to 25,000 because they didn't count the women and children. And from that, they had five loaves and two fish. And when they took what they had, the little bit they had, they still had the problem of faith there. They were like, ah, how can you feed this many people? And he said, what, how many fish do you have? Or how many, how many loaves of bread? And they said, we have five loaves. We have two fish. And they gave him, them to the Son of God. And what he did is he offered up thanks to the Lord in front of them all. And he said, Lord, thank you. And then he broke the bread and he, and he fed it to them. But what he did is he used the 12 disciples to hand it out. Now, these guys here were with him when that happened. You know how long ago that was before this passage? A couple of weeks. Do you really think that they forgot what happened? I don't. And here's why. They're in a Gentile region. They're in a place that even though they've walked with Jesus and seen him minister to the Gentiles, this is a very new thing. They still have these um, prejudices, if you will. They have prejudices against the people that are not inside the covenant. And so they treat them differently. They think about them differently. And no matter how much they know Jesus, they still have these things built into everything that they've known since they've grown up. And so they have this precursor in their minds that, how are you going to satisfy these people? Now, obviously, people get really touchy when you say these people. You know, we're kind of in a society now where people are getting away from trying to separate anybody out and make them feel like they're different. But we're all different, whether we want to be or not. And the way that the disciples still looked at them is these people. And so as they're looking at them that way, Jesus doesn't address that. He doesn't say, hey, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't deal with any of that. What he says is, how many loaves do you have? This is no different than the circumstance from a couple of weeks ago. So I'm going to ask you the same question again. How many loaves do you have? There's 4,000 people in this crowd. Now, despite what we knew from the last passage, this is a literal 4,000 people. This is way less people. 
and they have more bread. So they should have seen that and gone, well, we're with Jesus and he multiplied it last time, but they didn't. Now, I'm not going to beat up on the disciples because I'm the same way. I have the same tendencies. Yeah, he worked that way then, but can he do it again? And the reality is, is if he was willing, he's going to. And so he takes the bread. And it has nothing to do with the disciples' faith in him. Notice that too. It's not because they had enough faith in him that he could work. It's because he was already determined to bless the Gentiles. He had already been moved with compassion. Nobody was going to stop him. So in verse 6, it says, He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and he gave thanks. He broke them and he gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to set, he said to set them also before them. Now first I want to notice here, he took the bread and he took the fish, 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 fish. He took the fish and he blessed them. This is a non-believing crowd. This is not a godly crowd. But you know what he does when he sits down to eat? He prays. I want to challenge you guys. Like I, I am convicted about this because I have a tendency and I have Christians that I work with but I don't pray before my meals when I'm sitting there. And it doesn't mean I got to sit there and bust it out. But, you know, Lord, thank you for this meal. Just showing them that, hey, God provided this meal for me and I have to give thanks. He's the one that gave it to me. So I challenge you, you know, if you have a situation where maybe God's giving you a, a platform just to give thanks, you don't have to preach. You can just give thanks to the God that you know and let that be your witness. You know, you may not say anything else during the day, but you'd be surprised at the people that will be affected. Um, there's a friend of mine, he just got baptized today, and, and he started doing that. He started praying at his work. Simple thing. We oftentimes think the simple things are not the strong witness things. But he started praying for his meals. He's sitting down, and he gave thanks. He said, Lord, thank you for this meal. And he would do it every day, and he worked at this gun shop. And this guy that works with him started praying before his meals, too. He's like, you know, a little bit of positive peer pressure. It's not a bad thing. And uh, he started praying for his meals, and it was funny because his mom came in, one day, it's kind of a family business, and his mom came in right before they were eating, and her son, who was this guy's, my friend's friend, if that makes any sense, if you can track with me, and, uh, and he was giving thanks for his food, and the, the guy's mom came in and goes, what are you praying for? You never prayed before so-and-so was here, you know? But the truth is, is that salt and light preserves, and it also causes thirst. We want to, you see somebody that has a relationship with the Lord that's real, like, you can't help but look at that and go, I want, I want more of what that guy's got. He's got joy and peace. And, and that guy's going through a lot right now. Or they might be completely blessed, but they're always giving thanks to the Lord. It's a witness that goes beyond measure. So, okay, I'm off my soapbox. Verse 8, so they ate and they were filled and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Verse 9, now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away. Immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So not only will he feed the multitude here in this Gentile area, but he will show his disciples the heart of his father by doing so, by showing them in advance that they will be used to bless all nations. That's, that's God's made, it's his big plan. And so later, when they are sent out by the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascends into heaven, and I already alluded to this, Peter gets a vision in Acts chapter 10 from God that he is to go to the Gentiles to preach the good news of salvation through Jesus. 
Jesus is showing his disciples by his actions. And that's always the best time to te- the best way to teach anybody that you're trying to teach. I'm thinking about this a lot. Got a little girl on the way. She's going to be born in about five weeks. I'm scared to death. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be a good dad. How can I be a good dad? I can teach with my words, but without my actions, they won't mean anything. So Jesus here, he, he backs up what he's teaching them by showing them. He's, he's living it. Notice the result of Jesus feeding this multitude. The disciples had asked the question, how can one satisfy these people with bread in this deserted place? And Jesus does it. How can they? Well, if they're the one that can. The only one that can satisfy anyone is Jesus Christ, no matter what they're going through. And, there's plenty, uh, and notice also that there's plenty of food left over. Seven large baskets. We know this is different because there was 12 baskets in the, the Jewish feeding of the 5,000. But the basket, the word for basket there is actually a Gentile-style basket. That's how we know it, that's where they're at with Gentiles because the baskets are way bigger. Um, just a little side note there. But there's plenty left over. And notice that even though there's leftovers, they're completely satisfied. They're satiated. It's like getting done with Thanksgiving, except without the after effect of like want more. You know, like, hey, there's still a little pumpkin pie left in there. You know, there's leftovers. And the Lord does that. He feeds his sheep abundantly. There's always leftovers. There's always room to come back to the table. We should be glutted on his word. He says, all who are thirsty, come. Drink from the water. You will not thirst again. This is going to satisfy you. That's the message Jesus wanted to send back with 4,000 people that were in his care for three days, that they were satisfied. He wanted the nations to know, come to the, na- to the Lord, Jehovah. Come to Jesus, and you'll be satisfied. And when they went back, imagine this, if you will. This is like a little contingent that came out to see Jesus. And when they went back to the, their cities, they're from the region of Decapolis. There's 10 cities there. They all kind of get salt and peppered, spread it out over these 10 cities and each one of them has areas of influence that the Lord is going to give them. And so when Jesus ascends in the, the book of Acts, all the, the apostles, they go out and they preach the gospel. There are many that have already heard because they're like, yeah, we met Jesus. We, we know the guy. And so what they do is they come along and they teach them the rest of the story. The sending of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts when you know Jesus goes back to the Father. And actually, before I go there, I need to just read that passage in John chapter 4. Excuse me, John chapter 14. Go ahead and turn there with me if you would. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then in the chapter 14, verse 25. See, we worship a living God who knows every detail of our lives and He delights in being the one who satisfies us, who provides for us, who heals us, who comforts us. He also desires to fellowship with us. That's that's why He sent Jesus, to get rid of that break between us and the Father. He desires for us to know him, not so we can sustain and take care of him like the the other nations that had many gods where they'd leave offerings before him. But he doesn't ask us to satisfy him. He says, I'm going to be your satisfaction. I'm going to satisfy you. So in John chapter 14, verse 25, it says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither 
let it be afraid. You have heard me say, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And that's kind of the theme of the book of John. It's written, and the main theme is, so that you may believe. And so Jesus here is doing what all the other nations' gods could not do. I went to India once. Well, I've been to India twice now on mission trips. And I've never seen poverty like this. You know, we have poverty in our country but we don't have it on the massive scale that they have there. And what, we, what you need to know is about the, the idols and the gods that they worship is that they, their temples and their gods are taken care of. They're polished. They're, you know, they have nice green lawns in front of them. And their gods, what they do is they say, worship us, fear us. And they do. They worship them in many ways way better than we worship our God. But what happens is because of the, way that, the nature of their God, because it's fake, it's not real. There's demonic powers behind them, but they're not real. Is what their gods do is they take and they take and they take from them. But the God Jehovah that we worship, he offers the bread of life to us. He allows his body to be broken so that we can be satiated, so that we can be satisfied, filled, well-fed sheep. And then what he does is said, I've, I've blessed you so that you can go and be a blessing. And that's what he does for us. He makes us a blessing. He in turn makes us a reflection of his father. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He says, this is the standard you're to live to. But you don't have to. You get to. And then he gives us the power to live according to his word. And because of that, many other people get blessed. And we get to do the same thing for Jesus. We get to take what little we have, offer it to the Lord and say, Lord, this is my life. Uh, Use it to bless others. And then he breaks it. Sometimes it's hard. He breaks our lives. He breaks them. He gives us brokenness. But he gives it to us so we can relate to others, so that we can bless others, so that we can point to Jesus and say, I, I don't know what you're going through, but I've, I've been through this thing. And Jesus is the only way that I was ever able to get through it. He's the bread of life. So, Father, thank you so much for allowing us to, uh, to just look into your character and to see who you are, to see who you, not just who you say you are, but who you really are. And I pray that as we look at these truths, that we would be those, like in Isaiah chapter 26, would be kept in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because we trust in you. Lord, help us to have our minds completely stayed on you. And Lord, also, please help us by your spirit, uh, remove the prejudices that we have towards people that we think that you could never reach or you could never satisfy. I confess to you that there are people in my life that I don't know that you could ever satisfy, but at the same time, that's a a detriment to myself because you satisfied me, and who am I to say that your arm is not long enough that you can't save? And so, Lord, forgive me for that, but Lord, thank you that you offer new mercies every day, and I pray that as we get to know you, that we would not just get to know you, but we'd want to be imitators of you, that we would reflect who you are to the people that need to hear about you because that's truly the only spot we're in where we could give anyone or be able to point anyone to the ability to have peace in their lives. So Lord, I pray for peace to come. Pray for your son Jesus to be glorified in our lives and that he would draw all men unto himself. Lord, be glorified in us. In Jesus' name. We're going to close in the song of worship.